you know, home and just enjoying. And I know the last time we talked, we talked together on the phone. We haven't actually met in person. Yes. Um, but I feel like we've right. met in person because Brian and I ate at your restaurant, The Cecil, many years ago before we yeah. even lived in New York City. And I felt like just coming into that environment, we we got to know you in some way through that space. Well, then, then it did what it was supposed to do. Uh, my, my premise and my philosophy with respect to having restaurants, and the Cecil was my fifth restaurant, is taking my living room public. So the feeling of, of creating a space for the public that was um, intimate and an extension of myself. So if, if, if that came across, then yes, we met. <laughs> then we, we no, did yes. meet already. The environment was great and the food was amazing. So, you know, that's, that was the big takeaway. And I feel like we're, we're all going to meet you tonight and we're going to talk about your, your new book, I mean, you you do it all. You are a chef. You're a restaurateur. You were an opera singer. And now you have this brand new book out, Meals, Music, and Muses, Recipes from My African-American Kitchen. And we are thrilled to be able to get into it this evening. Yes. Thanks. Let's, let's hit it. <laughs> well, let's, let's just start with you. Like, we'd love to just, like, how, tell us about your story and how did music and food just become a part of your life? How did all that happen for you? Well, you know, I was very fortunate to have a, a loving, doting family. Um, mm -hmm. The only boy, the only grandson, um, and uh, parents who had decided that in order to change uh, the conversation of our historic legacy, um, that education, and I think uh, most parents uh, of that generation uh, who had gone through um, uh, so many difficulties recognized that their kids having a proper uh, foundation, education, was what was going to change their story. You know, they didn't have a lot of money to give me, uh, property or, you know, status and position. Uh, but what they could do um, with everything they had was to make sure that I had a solid education so that I was in a position to have options, which they didn't have, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I was very fortunate when I was born. Um, my aunt and uncle, who lived in Harlem, very much a part of the of, um, uh, sort of after uh, thought of the Harlem Renaissance, Mm -hmm. um, kept a, a proper apartment here. Uh, my uncle was a chef. My aunt was a classical pianist. They had tried to have kids. Um, and um, it wasn't until my aunt was old enough to receive her social security that my uncle found out the reason why she wasn't able to have kids because she was much older than him. But <laughs> to, my, yeah, to my advantage... They're not being able to have kids. When I was born, they decided to move from Harlem back to South Carolina and be a part of raising um, this new uh, boy that had been born to the Smalls family. Wow. So they set me up. And, uh, you know, uh, 
when I was growing up, my grandfather's house was in the center of a pyramid, if you will, at the point. And then my father's house and my uncle's house was at the other end of that pyramid. In the middle of that pyramid was my grandfather, who we call the city farmer, was his huge garden and chicken coops. Now, keep in mind, we lived in the city, but like Martha Stewart, he afforded himself the luxury of having a chicken coop in his backyard <laughs> and a garden. And so um, on my way to any of those destinations, be it my father's house or my grandfather's house or my, my uncle, I had to go through that garden, which really created the foundation of my life. If I went to my grandfather's, um, it was all about food and, and all about um, old stories of his parents and my history. When I went to my uncle's house, it was about the classics. I was educated in opera and in Shakespeare, uh, John Donne and Langston Hughes. Um, again, as, as my uncle was a part of the Harlem Renaissance, he made sure that my education was enlightening. And so here I am, little black boy in the 60s, uh, listening to opera, uh, uh, Maria Callas, listening to uh, Birgit Nilsson, Tito, Tito Gobbi, Caruso. Um, you know, my life was full with these things that I couldn't translate outside of my, my environment because a lot of my friends <laughs> were doing that. So yeah. that just kind of sets the foundation. That was the music. And then when you have an uncle and an aunt, a grandfather, uh, and then another uncle on my mother's side and her father, who were chefs and cooks, well, there it is. And it, it sounds like it, it really was family foundation. It was really growing up yeah. in this beautiful family. It sounds like with so many talents and abilities that were happening there and just being able to be surrounded by that that inspired you to get started on this journey. Yes, yes, it all happened there. Uh, in my first book, uh, Grace the Table, um, which is how I became Alexander Smalls, I detail uh, my uh, my journey from birth to the first day I opened Capitola, my first mm. And in that book, you know, I celebrated that, that unique situation that at the time, you know, I didn't realize how unique it was because simply it was my reality. Yes. You know? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Now, you've said in other places that, you know, with all of this to choose from and with so many, uh, you know, amazing talents already in your family, out of all that music really stood out as your first love. Singing was the thing that drew you first. Uh, you know, I'm just curious to know what that experience of singing was like at that age. And then when you were first exposed to opera, how did that become the thing that really took your soul at that moment? Did you dream even then that it would take you around the world the way that it did? It took my soul. It took my soul. It was, it was, remember in your own life when somebody introduced something and it was like they opened a window, a door, a passage. And it was, for some people, it was basketball or football. And I did all of that, baseball, to my father's blessings. He loved that, but it wasn't who I was. When I was presented with music, and particularly opera, and particularly the classics of, of European music, mm-hmm. I imagined myself in that place um, 
and it was a natural fit. Mm. So I'm learning at a very early age, uh, and a lot of it, I mean, it even started before I could read, you have to remember. So I would listen to these old recordings um, and imitate and mimic in the mirror. And and I had a great ear. Uh, I could memorize both um, the the romantic lead and the female lead. I mean, you know, you know, blessed as a kid to have a great falsetto. Yeah. And I acted all of these things out. Um, and it gave me such great joy. So yeah. you can imagine what I announced to my parents, who was grooming the first black president, by yeah. the way, uh, or certainly a lawyer or a doctor, when I announced that I wanted to be an opera singer. And nobody they knew was an opera singer. Yeah. And the only black opera singer ever seen was on television, you know, Ed Sullivan, Marian Anderson. Yeah. But what world? There were no men. Mm. And my parents, their greatest gift to me was never to say no. Mm. They they were absolutely flabbergasted and pained that this expensive education that they had planned for me at their great sacrifice, mm. I was going to pursue something that made absolutely no sense to them at all. Mm. But they said, they they know, even my grandfather, who was born to, um, his parents were slaves. Mm. My grandfather paid for my music lessons. <laughs> I mean, it was a family affair, but had no idea that I, I, I imagined myself um, on an operatic stage. Uh, certainly in his lifetime, he didn't figure that it would happen. <laughs> yes. yes. But there it is. Yes. yes. Yeah. And it's so important that we all share these stories because it really is such a part of, of the Black family story. My, my, our families are both from Philadelphia. And, you know, my great-grandmother, <laughs> we talked about that <laughs> when we talked before. And, and um, she was, you know, she was a maid. She would go to white people's homes and clean their floors. And um, my, my mother my, and her cousins would get, you know, the white people that she worked for would give, like, their leftover furs or things like that. And she'd bring it home and everyone would have a fur coat or, you know, whatever that was discarded. But she did all that so that she could send my grandmother and her two sisters to college. And they all became educators. Um, my, my two aunts, my aunt and my girl became educators and one became, uh, worked as a nurse in the hospital. And then of course their children went on to do the next. And so I think there's all, it's uh, wonderful that your parents created, even though they didn't imagine what you do, they kind of had a different vision. They created space for you yeah. to become yourself. There were no less right. to the idea of, of giving you what you needed to be successful in whatever endeavor you were going into. And that's just an amazing thing. You know, the, the point is, if that's what you're going to do, then you have to be the best at that. And so, I mean, at a very early age, I had private instructors uh, coming to my house. I told my parents I wanted to turn my bedroom into a studio. As a serious opera singer, I needed a studio. And I wanted that bed out, replaced with a pull-out sofa bed. Yeah. I wanted my piano moved from the living room to the bedroom. 
uh, I needed all these accoutrements to assume the role uh, that I was destined for <laughs> as an opera singer. And they obliged. I mean, they. Uh, my mother years later said, well, anything to get you to stop screaming in the living room in the middle of the house, uh, it was a great <laughs> but but at the same time, you held up your end of that bargain. I mean, you did you did the work, and you were you stayed committed, and you did eventually go for you, you eventually left the living room. You stopped screaming in the living room, and you went for education. And uh, what we're very happy about, you actually went to Philly, to Philadelphia, to the Curtis Institute, which we love, and which actually sits right in House Square, across from one of our favorite Philly restaurants. And what was that experience like? What was the city like? What was what was it like to, you know, as you've talked about not being able to translate your love of opera outside of your immediate environment because no one else around you was doing well, suddenly you were in an entire world where everything around you was music. And, you know, what was that experience like? And also, how do you feel about being part of Philly's, the, the music tradition of that city? Oh, please. I love Philly. I mean, I probably would still be there had I not gotten a job on Broadway. <laughs> Philly was enough city for coming from South Carolina. Yeah. Um, but 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 let me let me say about Philly, it was life changing. Mm. Having grown up in South Carolina, and after that, uh, uh, and what you have to understand is that I was one of the black kids that integrated everything. It was my fate in life to be the classic integrator and the most popular black person for white people looking for black friends in mm. town. So, mm. and, and that continued college and it continued, um, you know, once um, I got to Philly. But the difference with Philly is I was in a professional environment. Mm. Um, and for the first time, I was engaging with other people of color who was pursuing the aspirations to be in classical music whether it was opera or instrumental music. What you have to understand about Curtis is it is one of the foremost of schools of classical music in the country, if not the world. It was started by the Curtis Bach family, and essentially they created a school for musicians uh, and studying serious music. If you got into Curtis, which was one of the most difficult things on the planet, um, the year... Uh, that I auditioned for the vocal school. They had over um, close to a thousand applicants and they only uh, had six openings. Wow. Um, and this is a, yeah, it was, and this is a good time to say that 25 years before I auditioned at Curtis and got in, Nina Simone auditioned and was refused. Yeah. And it yeah. changed the course of her life and all of our lives uh, uh, because, you know, Lena went on to be a global iconic star, but she was a classical pianist and from, from Trier, North Carolina, 20 miles from where I grew up, her name was Eunice Wake. She had done a stint at Juilliard. Uh, I think it was a summer stint and, they just knew that she was getting into Curtis because Curtis paid for everything. Um, and her whole family moved to Philadelphia to be oh, with wow. her. Oh, my goodness. When she, yes. When she didn't get into Curtis, she had to get a job to support this family. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So she found a job 
that was advertised a job as a pianist. Mm-hmm. Um, and she went and they hired her, but they said, you have to sing too. Mm-hmm. And voila, Nita yep, was more. born. Wow. But all this happened in Philly and at Curtis Institute of Music. Well, let me also say that also Paul Robeson Mm -hmm. attended and was associated with Curtis. So Curtis is not a shabby school. And I could say maybe because was Black, she didn't get in. But then there's Paul Robeson. Mm -hmm. And then me 25 years later. But whatever it was that happened, and sometimes, you know, as Black people, we've been profiled. And they may have thought, nobody's going to hire a Black woman classical pianist, mm-hmm. woman and Black. Oh, forget yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Who knows what happened? But yeah. did we not get the great Nina Simone? Wow. It's amazing how things happen. And, you know, also, I, I love when you're talking about that Philadelphia experience, because a lot of people, if you're you're not from Philly, don't really understand um the way the Black community is there can be different from other places, even different from New York. I mean, it really has a very long history of a Black middle-class community. Education is central to everyone in Philly. You're just like, you know, most of our family members, if they're not, you know, people who are teachers, then they work in healthcare, Um, you know, and and that's why Du Bois went to Philadelphia and, and wrote the Philadelphia Negro because it is such a very different place for Black people. And it, it allows you, there is a space there, like you said, to really learn about yourself as an African-American and not feel like you have to be pigeonholed into any sort of one sort of right. place that you have right. to be pigeonholed into. Philly had a very progressive African-American community. I mean, Marian Anderson came out of Philadelphia, right. you know, and Paul Robeson. Um but also intellectuals, you had a Mr. Messiah, who mm-hmm. uh, essentially, uh, his son is Louis Messiah, who mm-hmm. uh, owns a film academy there in Center City. But he also was one of the people who started the African American Museum, mm-hmm. a rich, historic, artistic, intellectual, and financial community. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Sure. I mean, there's so much to it. I mean, uh, Richard Allen and Absalom Jones, the founders of the AME Church and everything that they did uh, in abolition yes. uh, after at the time. Just there's so much. And, and one of the things we love about it is actually walking around, especially in Center City, Philadelphia. There are all these great historical plaques that will, will kind of point out where there was an amazing husband and wife team that were caterers. Uh, that the Philadelphia Art Museum was designed by, you know, the University of Pennsylvania's first black architecture graduate. So much. And you know, I'll, I'll be here forever talking about Philly and, and black history. So, um. <laughs> Well, I'm right there with you. I'd probably be still in Philly because it was enough city for me. It was an incredible restaurant town. Restaurants oh. were innovative and amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a, a lot of history and culture. Uh, you know, Philly suffers from being sandwiched between Washington and New York. But <laughs> you take that away, it's an extraordinary place. <laughs> so so let's talk about after Philly, you you said you went to Broadway. So just kind of take us to that. I mean, you were uh, traveling all over the world performing. So I was in Curtis and had, was in the middle of my second year of graduate work. I had gotten my undergrad degree at the 
North Carolina School of Performing Arts, which was a unique, new kind of educational edu uh, concept um, uh, where uh, people had a lot more freedom. And it, it was kind of like an experimental school. North Carolina School of the Arts and then the Cal California School of the Arts. Um, oh but I finished those courses, and I was comfortable there. Um, and then the Houston grad opera production of Porgy and Bass mm. came to town. And they were performing at um, the Philadelphia Academy for a limited engagement. Uh, well, initially I had no interest because I was going to be what I felt was a serious opera singer. Mm -hmm. um, Porgy and Bess, uh, though it was an opera, and it's one of the greatest uh, operas, really, of our, of our time, uh, it had become a trap for African-American men. Mm -hmm. uh, we were essentially kept off the stages of, of high opera in America mm -hmm. only when it was time to do Porgy and Bess or Old Man River. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I didn't want to fall to that that uh, that that concept because I was on my way to Europe. Um, I'd already planned the trajectory of my career. And so Porgy and Bess, as much as I love the music, was a distraction. Mm -hmm. Nonetheless, an old girlfriend from South Carolina who was studying at a competitive school, Philadelphia School of the Arts, mm -hmm. uh, yes, uh, yes. Philadelphia School of Music, uh, uh, her date had canceled on her. She invited me to go to see the production with her at the last minute. So I threw myself together. And, and uh, you know, uh, when you are a starving student, anytime you can get tickets to the Philadelphia Music Academy <laughs> with a major tour uh, company, I was, I was game, right? <laughs> I went. Turns out the star of the Houston Grand Opera production was none other than Clamadale. Mm. Clamadale, uh, back in the day, was an up-and-coming, celebrated black soprano who could go from Bess to Aida uh, oh. to uh, Madame Butterfly, uh, just like that. Oh. Uh, a music prodigy from Juilliard. She was setting the world on fire wow. because... Not only was she beautiful and black, she was an extraordinary actress, had the most amazing voice, and, you know, she made grown men cry, right? <laughs> so she was starring in Point Best. Now, what made that special is that when I was in my senior year at, um, at North Carolina School of the Arts, my diction, German diction teacher was <laughs> from Juilliard. Uh -huh. And she was my German diction teacher. She was Clamadale's German vocal coach oh, wow. at Juilliard. So what happened is when I came up to audition uh, at uh, Juilliard and other uh, uh, Manhattan School of Music, places like that, in New York, before I decided to go to Curtis, that teacher gave me a room in her apartment, and I stayed there, uh, except for my last night, she was going away to her country house and needed me to find other accommodations. So she called up none other than Clamadale, oh, who, wow. who was her student, and probably the only other black person she knew. <laughs> and she said, 
there's this young black opera singer from uh, North Carolina, and he need from the North Carolina School of the Arts. He needs a place to stay for one night. Can mm. you put him up? And she agreed, mm. and she put me up in her one apartment with a sleeping bag under her baby grand piano. <laughs> <laughs> There's there's more to that story that I can tell. Um, I was so mesmerized by this woman. She was the most beautiful woman I'd ever seen. She was best, okay? Mm. She was the most beautiful woman I'd ever seen. And I was in her house. She ordered Chinese food that night, which was like something I'd never really experienced on that level. And um, we ate the food. Um, we talked. We got along really well. She announced that she was going to bed um, and her door would be locked. And <laughs> she gave me a sleeping bag <laughs> and made my under the piano. Wow. The next morning, I, I didn't I mean, I didn't sleep. I mean, my God, <laughs> it was just the most extraordinary thing that happened to me. <laughs> you know, country boy from South Carolina. The next morning, she I didn't see her until she was fully dressed for church. She had a church uh, job as a soloist. This is before she, she became a huge star. And the longest legs I'd ever seen in my life, especially from under a piano. <laughs> she felt like a new spring day. I mean, wow. she was just incredible, sophisticated, yeah. you know, wore red lipstick like um, had a little cap with the net. Oh, wow. And, you know, I pulled myself together. I walked to the church, and then I got on my way to come back to Philadelphia. But that had been my experience with now the leading lady in the production of Porky Bats. So yes. New York got in your heart in that Not moment, me. it sounds like. like that was it. <laughs> so after the show, I said to my friend Laurie, said, we have to go backstage. I know this woman. She, uh, um, I know her. I spent the night with her. I know her. <laughs> you know, badly putting the words together. So we get backstage, and she, and she remembers me. I'm thrilled, and blah, blah. And she invites me to the cast party. Mm-hmm. which I went to, and she told them all I was a young singer. Uh-huh. Immediately, they set up an audition. Oh my I wow. sang for them. They hired me on the spot. My uh-huh. teacher cried because uh-huh. she was afraid that, that that Broadway nonsense would take me off track mm-hmm. and that I was destined for a serious career. And mm-hmm. I said to her, I have to have this experience. I just have to. And so she said, all right, go for like six weeks and then come back. Yes. Well, three and a half years later, on the dog. <laughs> and by the way, I never went back. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you did win a uh, Grammy and a Tony for your part in... in and there it is. So, I mean, 
and, and, and that was my reward for not going back. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I love, Alexander, no. when, when you go through your story, you know, it sounds like from the time you were young, you, you'd already set, you know, this sort of, it sounds like a dream world, you know, but it's, you already had imagined it. And so everything was leading you, you know, to the next step of your, your dream of yes. what you, yeah. you know, were focused on building for yourself. And, you know, so this music career, which sounds like it was fabulous. I mean, you, like you said, you won awards. I mean, it was, you know, you did all of this and now Travel. you are a restaurateur and an author. How did that switch, you know, happen? Yeah. Well, quite, quite candidly, I hit the glass ceiling. Mm. The the ghost, the Porgy and Bass, Old Man River, all of those things that essentially kept black men out of major operatic performances in this country. Mm -hmm. uh, many went to Germany to have these careers uh, and lost their voices because they're overworked, underpaid, and just you. I had three auditions at the Met. Um, two of them were arranged by my dear, dear friend, Kathleen Battle, the great mm -hmm. operatic um, diva. Yeah. And the last one, I flew home. I was living in Paris, mm -hmm. and I was studying at the Paris Opera House and, and taking culinary classes at La Varenne, which was a cooking school there that's no longer. Um, but Kathleen said she would give me that audition, and so I flew home to the Met, thinking that having studied in Italy with the great Tito Gobbi mm -hmm. uh, in Rome, uh, having sung at uh, opera houses there, done a tremendous amount of recital work, and mm -hmm. studied with the Paris Opera House and Madame Adolf, who was mm -hmm. an incredible coach, that I was finally uh, ready to take my place with um, the outstanding singers at the Met. Yeah. So I came back. And I had my audition. I was being represented at the time by the best uh, classical music agency, Columbia Artists, CAMI, mm -hmm. they're referred to. And so, you know, I thought, this is really going to be it. There's, there's nothing standing in my way. I have the best representation. My resume is pretty uh, extraordinary. Mm -hmm. um, and I've known some of the greats. Um, I even had the pleasure of uh, spending... A, uh, time with uh, uh, Luciano Pavarotti, mm. who was like a mentor and a father, and babysitted kids when they come to New York, which I write about in Grace the Table. There's some funny mm. stories there. But, you know, with respect of creating a pedigree, that the next, the next stop for me was the Metropolitan Opera House. Mm. Um, I went into that audition confident and feeling like I was going to slay it. Yeah. Kind of like Hillary on election night. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. No competition. But the rude awakening after, and usually in these auditions, you sing one aria and then you start another one and then they, and that's it. I mean, they're not there for you to give a recital. Mm. So I sang two complete arias, started the third aria, mm. and then was interrupted and was told, oh my, you, you're, 
you've grown so much, your artistry, um, your voice sounds amazing. Uh, we really would like to work with you. Uh, my accompanist was like shaken, uh, so mm -hmm. much so the, the music fell off the piano. Um, so they said to me, well, we think we'd like to hire you to sing chorus yeah. and some small roles wow. in Porgy and Bess. Mm -hmm. Now, what you have to understand is I've just been critically acclaimed yeah. and in Porgy and Bess, and now you're offering me a lesser role. Mm -hmm. So I announced probably, well, much to the to the dismay of my agent, who I found out later knew that they were going to offer me this before I even sang one note. Uh, I said I wouldn't be interested in that. Yeah. I wouldn't be interested in any of it. And if all you have for me now, I have to respectfully decline. Mm -hmm. I walked and left the stage. I didn't even speak to my agent. I just headed for the door. She came running after me. You've just turned down an opportunity of a lifetime. I mm. mean, you know, sometimes you have to go in the back door and make these things work. Mm -hmm. And I said to her, I know what happens to people that go in back doors for um, uh, organizations, companies like this. You never get further than the kitchen. Mm -hmm. And I'm not interested in that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so that really was the foundation that threw me into the hospitality and restaurant industry. It was my, uh, at any given time, my second love, my first love, because mm -hmm. I had a loving relationship with classical music and opera, as you can imagine, because it was all based on whether or not I break through the racism. Yeah. Um, I didn't have to deal with that in the same way when food was involved. So mm -hmm. I left there feeling that my only option was to not only own a seat at the table, but I had to own the whole damn table. Yeah. I couldn't own a restaurant, but I couldn't, I couldn't own an opera house, but I could own a restaurant. And I went home, drank a whole bottle of fabulously expensive wine that I've been <laughs> saving. In fact, I brought it from, from Paris with me. Uh, that was when they had allowed you to do those things and didn't check your bags. And I drank the bottle of red wine. The next day, I woke up with a plan. Mm -hmm. 18 months later, I had started building my first restaurant, Cafe Pula. Um, I love. I, and that is amazing, just to, to hear the whole story. I'm going to let Bri ask the next question. Oh. I asked so many, because I'm intrigued. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is one. Okay. Um, we're looking at, we've been looking at your latest book, Meals, Music, and Muses, and... You know, it didn't take long. I think I fell in love with the book just going through the table of contents, mm. um, just looking at the imagery, <laughs> the, the the feeling that it was creating, the the combination of like the cityscapes, the jazz scenes. Um, there wasn't even really any food in the first couple of pages, just from opening the cover. Uh, but it just it created this this amazing feeling of my culture. You know, mm. I, I felt that from the time that I opened it. And one of the things that I, when I was completely gone, was looking at the, the table of contents, the groupings of different dishes being paired in different types of music. And so I just wanted to ask, and I know you go into it a little bit in each chapter, but 
just from the beginning, before anything was written down, what was the feeling that led you to start making those combinations? So, you know, how do starters feel like jazz? Or what about greens that lead you to gospel? Well, you know, this book afforded me the opportunity to really tell uh, my unique story through the lens of food and music. Mm. Um, my two constant companions, <laughs> my tools and my weapons uh, mm. in life. And so uh, having had uh, a kind of storied career uh, where I can now look back on um, a, a collection of episodes and events, um, uh, a journey that you know took me from 118 High Street in Spartanburg, South Carolina, to mm. Harlem, mm. Um, and along the way, five restaurants, um, you know, three books, uh, and all kinds of other stuff that was going on. Recitals, you know, some awards, some admissions, mm. and so I wanted to take an opportunity to create a book that not only kind of shared my life's experience, but also was inclusive and celebrated the, the, the soul and the intelligence of African-American people. Mm. Um, and our culture. Yeah. So, you know, I had a wonderful team and, and, and let me say something uh, very special about uh, my co-writer, Veronica, this amazing woman who showed up, uh, Veronica Chambers, she showed up and she helped uh, me to uh, create the narrative of, of my life. And on our first meeting with her and the publisher uh, here in my apartment, um, and my apartment is a character in my life, by the way. It, <laughs> As designers, we love to hear it's that. Just not a, you know, it's just not a place where I live. It is an active character in my life. Um, and it is uh, the host that I hope to be. <laughs> and if I fall down on the job, the apartment will take care of you. Um, so we had that first meeting here in my apartment uh, the three of us, the publisher, uh, Will Schnobley, and, um, uh, and Veronica Chambers. And we talked about what makes Alexander, Alexander. And we came up with this concept to really tell the story through the musical disciplines that were the, the, the soundtrack of my life wow. and of African-American people. Yeah. So I started with spirituals because it is the foundation of who African-American people are. Mm. When you think about the purpose and how spirituals came to be, um, you know, the rituals of Africa scared the hell out of white people. Mm -hmm. The drumming, the dancing the yeah. excitement, you know, they thought we were rioting. So mm. all of that was forbade, it was forbidden. They couldn't do that. The only thing and the only way that black people could gather is if it was about religion yes. and the religion that they had given up, not only to keep us uh, motivated, stimulated, 
but mm -hmm. also keep us in line. And because essentially um, our behavior was monitored by a God that was everywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, and you have to remember, we're talking about Africans, but not Christians. So all mm -hmm. of a sudden they have this new uh, religion. And, and what you have to understand about who black people, African-Americans in this country are, mm -hmm. is that from the moment we were stolen from Africa, we were stripped mm -hmm. of everything. Mm -hmm. I mean, everything, not just your purse and your handbag, your mm -hmm. lipstick, you know, the content of your pockets, your identity, yes, your worth, yes. your name, your lineage. Yeah. You were stripped of everything, which is why um, uh, European uh, Americans had no problem classifying us as cattle, livestock, because essentially... That's what they created, just that we had properties of being human. Uh, so, you know, we could, you know, birth their babies and cook their food. But take care of their babies, sorry. But the point, well, sometimes it was birthing because there was so much incestual, it's so much rape and, um, and compromise that went on. But if you can imagine that black people in this country started at zero, Zero. So when you put our lives in context and who we are, not only then, but now, yeah. there it is. Right? Yeah. So yeah. the spirituals were created so white people were comfortable about our getting together, communicating. Mm -hmm. They were used uh, to, uh, to talk about current events. They were used mm -hmm. to talk about... Um, things coming up, Underground Railroad. They were used to uh, comfort each other. But mm -hmm. essentially, they, as dumb as they were supposed to be, created a language and a way to um, integrate their thoughts and their intentions by taking Christian scripture mm -hmm. and putting it to African melodies. Yes. So the spirituals is where we start. Now, yeah. that became jazz. In many ways, because of my great uh, relationship and influences of Went Marsalis, oh, who wrote wow. the introduction to my first book, Table. Um, Wenton used to say, I cook like a jazz musician. Mm. Um, and it makes sense, especially for the friends who know me, uh, because <laughs> I never make the same thing twice. So that macaroni and cheese will be different. You know, that duck will be different. Everything will be different. Okay. So when used to say, well, damn, uh, uh, Brother Smalls, you're, 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 you're a jazz musician and you're riffing and doing this. So this is how I started the jazz uh, concept. Mm -hmm. and, and that preceded the spirituals. I'm sorry, I got, I got uh, uh, off. But then the spirituals came, which created the foundation. So the jazz was the voyage. It was, you know, and then we moved on to gospel. So the gospel was about my grandfather in his garden, his half-acre garden between my parents' house, his house, and my uncle's house. And in that garden, my, my grandfather was very religious but didn't go to church because he ate, hated the politics of church. So he would say that <laughs> garden was his, his church. And yeah. my mother couldn't pay me to work in her rose a garden, 
or her flower beds. I hated them. But in that garden with my grandpa, baby, the lessons, the life lessons, the he was an amazing man that I didn't realize couldn't couldn't read or write until I was a senior in college. Wow. And I never knew because he had the most incredible vocabulary and way with words and he did everything. I mean, it was like, you know, I used to go with him in his truck and um, he was so well-respected. The one time I had an uh, in a, in exchange with cops because I was uh, 16 years old driving my mother's brand new Pontiac mm. and in the parking lot listening to the radio of a, um, of a, of a shopping mall mm. and the cops about three of them surrounded the car, yeah. drew guns yeah. and, and uh, uh, I had to exit the car. It was the, you know, my parents are very sheltering. So I'd never experienced anything like this. Yeah. And so I get out of the car and all these guns are pointed at me. The one thing that saved me was when they got my license, the name Smalls. Mm-hmm. And he said, are you Ed Smalls' grandson? Wow. I said, yes. And I was on the verge of tears. I mean, yeah. even now when I think about this, it was such an abrupt uh, uh, um, disruption. Yes. And he said, oh, we're so sorry. Please mm. tell your grandfather we didn't mean any harm. You just look like somebody we knew. Uh, mm. Tell him I look forward to seeing him again. Wow. wow. The power of my wow. grandfather. You know, it's, and I love hearing the story the power. of your grandfather and, and who he was, like you said, being out there in the garden with him and, and that that's where, you know, you were learning these life lessons. Um, but even as you're, you know, talking about the story with the police, I mean, we're all you know, right now in this moment, again, for, for Brian and I, this is a very um, new moment for us. We grew up in Philly where we didn't have, you know, I grew up outside of Philly. I grew up in the country. So I, I'm, I'm from a very small town where there is nothing but, you know, cows and pigs. And it's a mostly Mennonite community. <laughs> so it was, you know, it was way out there. Um, never really had any interaction with the police and um, even in Philadelphia, like it wasn't, you know, a, a hostile interaction, um, you know, that you grew up with. No, no, not for the most part. No. And, you know, now we're in this moment that for us is just going like everything is, needs to shift um, because we've had experiences that we've never had in our life that make us scared, you know, that make us scared of law enforcement, scared right. of, um, people that are so powerful that it feels like if you go outside your your door, your life can be taken and no one will do, you know, um, anything about it. And one of the things we've leaned on, to, things we've leaned on, I think a lot of African-Americans have leaned on is is music and food. You know, it, it's these things that yes. we come back to again and again as our comfort, you know, to get us through the moment. So, you know, as you were writing the book, you know, and, and you talk about these two things that were part of your life. Were, and even now today, are those things that, that you kind of come back to as comfort to get through this moment? Oh, yes. Uh, full disclosure, um, I just finished, by the way, um, for the first mm-hmm. time in 30 years, I went into the recording studio mm-hmm. and I've just uh, completed 
my first LP in 30 years celebrating um, the African-American songbook. Mm -hmm. And I, I plan for this to be a series. Um, so I started with spirituals. When slavery was over, spirituals kind of lost their foundation and mm -hmm. sense of belonging. I mean, the church took them over and you hear them at funerals, a church service. And maybe if you go to a classical recital, um, the singer might sing two or three spirituals. But uh, uh, it's a dying art. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, I, I got together with two uh, Grammy award-winning producers, um, Bob Satan and Ulysses Oynes, mm -hmm. and we produced a new context of this music, putting it in the jazz idiom, because spirituals are most akin to jazz and blues, mm -hmm. and jazz was something I could sing. And, um, well... I'll let you decide, but <laughs> we create music form with some extraordinary jazz musicians. Mm. Um, I don't have a release date, but I'm happy to say that we finished the work. And I share that because music, as much as me writing this book, mm. um, constantly jamming in the kitchen and cooking food and, and presenting it on Instagram, it's mm. still my salvation my sanction mm -hmm. one of the reasons and one of the most important reasons not just for myself but all african americans mm -hmm. it's the two things we can own mm -hmm. it was it was what we could own when we had those slave songs those spirituals i mean we own that yeah. that couldn't be taken away it couldn't be negotiated um it was ours mm -hmm. and i think it's why it still motivates us today Absolutely. Absolutely.